All right, you want to? Uh, yeah. Want to just hop in? Yeah, let's go. I have no Always. idea what we're doing. That doesn't matter. Thinking Basketball Podcast. Welcome back. My name is Ben. Here with Dave Dufour. Dave, thanks for thanks for talking to me on a recorded conversation where we have no idea what we're going to speak about. I mean, I wouldn't have it any other way. <laughs> I've asked Dave to uh, join me. We've been talking about doing an episode during this stretch anyway before the season was suspended. And, and later on in the episode, as you may have seen in the show notes, we're going to have uh, some discussion on coronavirus with a, a researcher who handles that. But I thought I'd start by talking to old reliable dave you know the people requested you did they over t- well i don't know if yesterday they requested you but they said when is dave when is dufour coming back now that's funny because i i remember distinctly you telling me that uh my first appearance was quite controversial well they liked it some people liked it some people did not like it yeah but i think the people that didn't like it if i correct me if i'm wrong thought i was hot takey but I'd challenge those people to go back and listen to I, those well, hot, hot takes that were very, very lukewarm. I think you have a reputation. As yeah, a, it's so funny. It's it's the uh, it's the delivery of the information, not the actual information. <laughs> so so, do you think you're more of like a, a microwave guy or like a like a like a slow simmer? No, versus I'm just not. A red I'm not hot boring. Fire? No, I'm not boring. Well, that's true, right? Uh, and so, uh, I come across like one of the entertaining guys, but you know, there's a lot of work that goes in. Do you think you're not entertaining? No, I know I'm entertaining. I'm saying (laughs) I, I, I come across like one of the guys that's just entertaining, right? Like a Stephen A. Smith. What, what are we going to talk about today? know anything. What are we talking about today? We're on, yeah. What day is this? What day is this? We're on day. Is this day four of the three Corona lockdown basketball suspension? Listen. It's the off season. Just, let, let, can we just? I just want to clear this up. <laughs> it's my assumption that we are just in the off season. We could be, this, but what if it's a pause? What if it's an intermission? I think it's unrealistic. But well, that may be I, the case. We'll we'll, we'll talk about just, that later in the show. Right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I just uh, you know I'm treating this like it's the off season, and um, you know, as somebody who watches probably too much basketball. It's kind of nice to have another All Star break, right, right, now. right after the All. That's what break. it feels feels like right now. You know, um, I'm sure in like two weeks it's going to be like, wow, this feels like August. Um, I saw your co-host over at the Athletic Nerd, she wrote Seth Part. Now he mm-hmm. he had specific requests, specific requests, Dave, from the internet to rank. <laughs> did you see this to rank I did. to rank the movies in the Fast and the Furious franchise? And I instantly thought of you and how no one has asked us for our definitive rankings of the National Treasure series. Well, I mean, listen, National Treasure three is going to blow away the first two. I, I, I think so. Right? Is there is there an agreed upon official order for National Treasure? Is it three one two? Is it three two one? Well, what, what say you? Assuming three is going to be better than the first two, it will be three one two because the second one is not as good as the first one. I don't. I, okay, let me let me let me push back on that. I kind of agree with you at a very obvious sense that doesn't need too much 
in-depth breakdown that mm-hmm. the first one the first one is better than the second one but the second one clearly leans into the the absurdity the the, the mood the space Absolutely. It, it gets a little bit more fan fiction-y in a way. The second one is their Fast Five. Ah, Fast Four, right? Where where they sort of realize what they are. It's a heist movie that has some cars in it, not a car movie like the first couple of Fast and the Furious movies were. Do you have do you have a rankings, a definitive rankings for the Mission Impossible series? I'd have to think about it. The newest ones have been They've been incredible. amazing. They've been amazing. Oh it, ke- it keeps getting better. That's the thing. Yeah, yeah, uh, and and what's funny is there's no, there's like no end of dudes like Henry Cavill that they can bring in to be the rogue agent, you know? <laughs> wow, Spo- like, just spoilers right there, just right oh, out of come the on. If I'm spoiling that movie for you, you don't you you weren't going to see it anyway, or maybe you're like, oh, Henry Cavill is a rogue agent. Uh, I need to see this. Will you? Was it your first appearance on the podcast where we started talking about Game of Thrones? And yeah, and you and thought were, you thought a few days a few days after the episode, the spoilers were off the table. Yeah, yeah. yeah so you're for very loose. Like that. You're very loose with spoilers. I'm very tight with spoilers. Well, for something like that, right? Like that was a. I mean, it was you know televised and and was a huge thing. Like I wasn't spoiling anything. It had already been spoiled for you if you hadn't seen it. <laughs> now, if it was, a, let's say it was a movie, and it's still in the theater. Like I, I actually, I wouldn't spoil Parasite, which I finally watched last night. What do you think of it? I, um, I so I, I had eaten uh, some edibles. <laughs> oh my god! This and is, yeah, this is fantastic already. I had eaten some edibles and uh, watched watched the movie, which I was told it was a wild thing to do. It is. Uh, I had the movie figured out in about twenty minutes. You knew. So the, I knew you, where I I knew the the gist of where it was going. Right. Um, I did not. Uh, there were you didn't see the yeah you didn't see the uh the yeah. so shall we say the underworld dwellings yeah yeah that's all that's all we should say so i wouldn't spoil that movie right because it, it's i can understand if you haven't seen it and and it's you know a movie that's in the zeitgeist so i wouldn't want to spoil that um but i totally would talk about joker right now you know yeah that's that t- it's sense. it's too soon for me see i i go the, the joker yeah i go okay. the other way i'm very extreme because I think about when I was growing up and getting into cinema, how rec- how just bold people were with like talking about HAL 9000 and other things. So when I see someone, you know, I'm like, you know, should I make a should I make a joke about kissing Fredo right now or is it too uh, soon? Is it is that too wow. soon? See, now I, I will say this. On a platform like this, I'm way more loose than I would be in real life. Like if I knew that you hadn't seen something, I wouldn't spoil it for you if I thought it was something that you should see. Isn't that backwards though? Maybe. I don't know though. Then then you just don't get to talk about anything. <laughs> right? right. What are speaking of talking about anything, what are we gonna talk <laughs> about today? We're I don't we're, know. We're ten minutes in and the, the people uh, are people are gonna be like, Oh fucking Dave dragging <laughs> all this pop culture shit out of Ben all the time. They're regretting they're regretting asking for Yeah. Yeah, a return to normalcy. But this is normalcy. When you come on you like right. to you like to shoot the breeze. I didn't about... do it. You did it. You brought up National Treasure. Did just I? for the record. I uh, did. For, for the for the people that are gonna complain that I pull out the pop culture stuff. This I was d- Ben's fault. It was me. The receipts yeah. are right there. That's right. You can rewind it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> By the way, do why do we still call it rewind? You're not winding anything. Well, all language. I mean I know. We don't need I to know. devolve into I know. that. I, conversation. It was that was a Seinfeld bit. 
Why is it rewind? Why? What are you rewinding? (laughs) Um, Anyway, basketball, interestingly enough, before they paused the season or took summer break or all-star break too, whatever you want to call it, I was thinking of putting together sort of, I don't want to say my awards ballot and we'll get into why and that's kind of what I wanted to talk about today, but the next episode was going to be about sort of awards i don't love the last 15 games of the season usually and they're prone to mm-hmm. hey we need to grab a narrative and we need to figure out all these things that happened in the last week or two because of recency bias so it felt like a good time to do that and i don't know we've got no plans but i thought maybe if you wanted to we could talk about some things like uh the concept of most valuable player and how the top guys slot into that we could talk about a few other awards and maybe even Give me thoughts on you know some of your all NBA players or something like that. I don't know. Yeah. Okay. Or we that could give good. people the chicken recipe that they've been asking me about for eight months. Um, okay. Basketball. So MVP. What do you look for when you're thinking about MVP? Great question. Yeah. Fantastic question. So here's because it's not just the best player. Well, here's my thing. Okay. And I've mentioned this before on the show. The MVP criteria is deliberately ambiguous. It's deliberately ambiguous to drive conversation. So one guy says, uh, I think about this as sort of closer to the best player, assuming he's in a situation where he plays a lot and provides regular season value. Um, You know, another guy says it's the guy who adds the most value on his team. And if you take him off the team, the team falls apart. And I don't care if they're at 50 wins or 65 wins. I don't care if they're barely making the playoffs. There's different approaches that people take and I think this is very much left uh, ambiguous deliberately so we can spark debate and conversation and therefore it's hard to it's hard to objectively say, you know, this guy should be MVP. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I agree. You, with that. you buy that? Mhm. So so like this this season for instance, Giannis elevates the Bucks to a championship level. Right? At least, you know, when when we're watching them during the regular season, they're hitting all of the metrics that you would expect from a team that that has a good shot to win the title. If you take them off, they're not that at all. And I think it's harder to go from middling playoff team to championship level than it is to go from lottery team to playoffs. Absolutely. You've come to the right right place. Yeah. So I don't uh, like, uh, I don't put anyone in there who isn't elevating their team to a championship level. I think that you have to do that in order to even be considered for one of the top spots. So, so before this all occurred, uh, with the league pausing, there was this sort of um, uprising of talk about how LeBron maybe should be the real MVP and not Giannis. It looked like it was right. Giannis in a runaway, not just because Giannis was having a great season, some might say historical season, some of the things he's doing, at least statistically, are very rare, but the Bucks also pushing towards 70 wins. Um, what do you think about that? Was that... Were you first of all? Were you on board with the fact that it was Giannis and it looked like case closed? Yeah, you. Were. I, I thought. Yeah, I had Giannis as uh, as the runaway because I also. I mean, look at what he is doing is so dominant. I mean, he, he's putting up the numbers he's doing in thirty one minutes because they're just destroying teams. So you don't think there's an argument for LeBron? I think in any other year, LeBron is having an MVP season, but the the difference is that what Giannis is doing is just so much. You know, it's in another stratosphere. Okay, so I'm glad you used that term because that's a term I've used to describe players and seasons historically. And the whole point of that term was to say 
every year there's more than one guy who's having a quote unquote MVP type season. They play right. they play at these incredibly high levels. And so whether you're splitting hairs or you care about different criteria, the the award could go to one of, oh, you know, I don't know, three or four players or whatever it is. Anybody else in that ballpark for you this year, Giannis, LeBron, uh, any anyone else sort of at the top of that discussion? I think Anthony Davis is up there. And I think over Kawhi. That's um yeah, no, no. I mean I've got Kawhi in that in that conversation. That's that's my top four. Um because when you look at the other teams, so like Toronto, it's very much a team effort. Boston, maybe Jason Tatum's up there. I don't know. I mean, he's he's having a great season and and just had an amazing like month and a half. Um, it, it it gets pretty tricky, you know, when when you start getting lowered down. Well, what about I think oh, top three is the most important? Well, so would you? You've got Giannis, LeBron. And I'll say LeBron and AD having amazing seasons together kind of weakens each other's case so you you degree. buy that you buy I the idea it, yeah that you can yeah, split the vote well it's easier uh, like it's an easier path for sure i mean and, and by the way Co- uh, chris middleton is on my all nba team i've got him third team all nba uh, any consideration before we move forward on those few guys because i have a few thoughts on them um for luka Jokic, or even someone like james harden uh i i, I think Jokic is probably my my fifth guy Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds and, reasonable. And yeah. Luca, you know, if they were if they were a top four seed, I'd probably have him over Jokic. So if you had a ballot, you would go Giannis one, LeBron, LeBron two, two, Kawhi probably three. Okay. A- Anthony Davis four, Jokic five. Okay. I think that's gonna be similar to a lot of ballots. Yeah. Um which makes sense. You know, those as we just mentioned, those are five of the best players, if not, you know, the five best players in the league, although some people might quibble on Jokic a little bit, but I think, I think that makes sense. So the interesting thing to me, and the re- let, me, let me take a step back full circle, the reason why I was going to discuss this in the last episode that never came about was, <laughs> was in his 35-year-old season in 1998, Michael Jordan won his fifth and final MVP. And in that season, that was a period uh, of time during the league where the next kind of wave of young player hadn't taken hold yet, and the old guard, if you will, was fading out, and it was actually a really weird, unique time where these guys were hanging on longer than ever before and even today. Like It was just some sort of transition between the generations that took a very long time, and so you had guys like... Michael, who was 35, you had Carl Malone, who was, you know, in his 30s and s- still was one of the best players in the league. You had a lot of older type statesmen, David Robinson, mm-hmm. sticking around and being at the top. And among that, Jordan really didn't have, there wasn't another peer, you know, Akeem Olajuwon, if you will, was another one of these guys, but he had faded. He was he was over the uh, sort of crest of his career and, and heading downward. And so there wasn't another great season right but here you have LeBron almost 20 years later coming into his 35 year old season four MVPs and he just has this kind of like a tour de force regular season because another thing to remember Dave that we haven't even touched on is however you feel about best player LeBron has had a clear upgrade in his play from regular season to postseason for like what four five six seasons now it's been a while yeah 
So, so a lot of people, again, say like this is a regular season award. And one of the reasons why he's finished third or fifth or fourth instead of first is because that incredible level of play that he's reached in certain postseasons, he hasn't, it appears, reached it in the regular season. This year maybe is a little different. He's had a phenomenal regular season from top to bottom. Mm-hmm. And even statistically, he's been pretty close in a lot of areas uh, in a lot of these major metrics or you know things like leading the league in assists and how incredible his passing has been and the performance of the Lakers when he's on and off the court, yada, yada, yada. He's been right there, but Giannis has still overshadowed him if you will yeah and Giannis is a legitimate defensive player of the year candidate yes as well. yes I mean he's yeah. he's one of the best defensive players his team is having a historic season and defensively their 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 defense um is one of the better defenses ever right now relative mm-hmm. to the competition I talked about yeah. this uh in my most recent power rankings articles for uh for patreon insiders patreon.com slash thinking basketball if you're interested in checking that out but some incredible data on the bucks not just their whole team season performance but even things like the top lineups there's a case that they for three guys on in their starting lineup to be all nba first team defense yeah you're i you're, i assume you're thinking of in addition to Giannis brooke lopez Mm-hmm. who I think is like one he, he's one a or one b defense player of the year with Giannis all right we can we can get into that because I disagree mm-hmm. with that uh and then the other one is Eric Bledsoe I imagine Bledsoe yeah he's just been incredible yeah uh he's I mean he's always been a great he, defense absolutely guard. but he he it's gone up a notch this year you think so I you know and I, I always wonder about about this because I mean he was fantastic last year and the playoff disappointment felt like so much of it fell in his lap even though it wasn't really his fault um because he was still doing it on the defensive end it was the offensive end and there were some weird stuff where they just didn't use him the way that they'd used him all season they had him spotting up a lot and it's just not that's a not his way. game yeah no it's it's a bad way to use him and i i wonder if if that was like a little bit of extra motivation for him this season like he is he's locked been locked in defensively just I, again another level he's probably been the best point of attack guard defender in the league you you would take him over someone like marcus smart well so it marcus smart you know i call him a six <laughs> i think that doesn't he call himself a stretch yeah six? yeah yeah and so like he guards everyone i think marcus smart's all nba defense as well he'd probably get the other guard spot just because that's what we call him but defensively i mean it, we should just rename whatever the the award is after Marcus Smart, because what he does is so unique. You know, you brought up something interesting about the difference between the offense and the defense, because I think so often when people think of playoff failures or they size up a matchup in their head, they really focus on one side of the ball. They focus on where we keep track of all the stuff, you know? It's like Mm -hmm. points and scoring and three-point percentage, and this guy's spotted. He was you know, relegated to spot up duty and he couldn't hit or Fred Van Vliet got really hot and all these things. It's like the Bucks defense last year was really good. Mm-hmm. The Bucks defense this year is historically good. And the thing that is making them an historically good regular season team. And so it's not that their offense is like bad or a problem or no, anything. They, I think they're third. Yeah. So it's a, <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a good offense, right? right? But I wouldn't call it a great offense. And so a lot of times, I mean, we can talk about this with Bledsoe, but the larger point, I think, stands 
in general, even with like how we size up playoff contenders, if the Bucks are suffocating teams to that degree in the postseason and Bledsoe's value is that good on defense, and I'm not sure I'm right there with you, but let's say it is, right? Mm-hmm. If if Giannis, and I think we're aligned here, if Giannis is like one of, if not the best defensive players in the league, and he's suffocating you on defense, the offense doesn't have to be great to roll through the playoffs and win a title. It just has I, to be good enough. I just want to point something out. <laughs> it's like 114 offensive rating that we're not calling great. Yeah. Isn't um, that crazy? Well, it's it's not anymore because the league scoring average is like pushing one eleven or something. And that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Like it yeah. is it is insane that that they score <laughs> at the rate they do, and we're like, ah, it's fine. It's it's good. Yeah. It's good. Yeah, but I'm it's also I, I'm accounting for the fact that you know, like maybe in the postseason, uh, you'll be able to scheme it a little bit or chip it away, oh, or, or, or certainly right, or or Bledsoe won't be as effective. I, when I think yeah. of Bledsoe on offense. I think he gets so much from that five-out spacing because mm-hmm. he's so good on the drive with the lane open, especially yep. when he's got a guy off balance, half a step, close out. That's his bread and butter on offense. He's when so he athletic can, there. When he can catch on the wing yes, and just go straight into the attack. Exactly. That's when he's dangerous. And they just weren't setting him up for that in the play. Well, in the series against Toronto last year, you know, there's a lot of talk about you know Giannis running into a wall. It's really true. They weren't attacking the sides of the wall. They were they were going head on, and it was, you know, collapse the defense with Giannis, and then hope that we can hit shots. And that's just, you know, it, we've seen a lot more in this season with the Bucks. We've seen a lot more offensive diversity, and I think that if, if you look at recent history, especially offensive diversity has has been the most important thing for these championship teams. Like, how do you how do you adjust? Once the you know once your first options are taken away, if you think back to the Oklahoma City Golden State Warriors series in during, sixteen during yeah during yeah. the seventy three win season, um, the Warriors were killing teams running Steph Curry off floppy um, and. Or, or floppy just, is when you dangle your arms out high and say give me the ball that's right no. that's it <laughs> no. so um, so for, the, for just for listeners who don't know floppy is like you you're you're down running around on the baseline coming off screens either direction uh for the catch and shoot kind of stuff things yeah. like that and so they were they were just killing teams because steph would he just was you know just on another level compared to everyone else and what it took was coming up with and it's such a small thing it was touching steph and Pushing him out of bounds, right? So forcing him to go out of bounds, Re- rerouting. Uh huh. You were they were changing the angle, right? And then the Warriors found a counter, and and then the the Thunder were sunk because they couldn't come up with a way to stop the counter. And I think what we saw with the Bucks and and Raptors last year, the Bucks stopped the primary option, and instead of countering, it it was you know what this worked for us all year. We're going to stick with it. The shots will fall. And they just weren't getting good looks. And so I, this year the, there's been a push to, to change that. And I think that you know we've seen that. Not to mention Chris Middleton is just having like an he, insane he's fantastic. season. I mean, just incredible season. What do, you, what do you think that counter was in 2016? Which counter? For Golden State. Oh, man. Uh, well, I'm and, trying and, to remember. Yeah, well, uh, he, well here's why I I literally just had this conversation with the person that came up with the game plan for the Thunder. Here, here's why I ask, because, and see if you can access it in your memory while I make yeah. this point, because 
is it a counter or my thing for a very long time in looking at success in the playoffs has been having sort of what uh, Nate Duncan and Danny LaRue might call optionality. Yeah. Having having enough in your uh, sort of offensive repertoire right. inherently that if someone overloads or cheats or takes something away, uh-huh. you don't need to sit there and you know completely reinvent the offense. Right. You just have a, a backdoor or something. It right. was uh, it was instead of having Bogut set the screens, uh, they started having uh, Iguodala on the court. Okay, so so right. when the when the when the guy guarding Iggy slid over, you would wind up with a lob. Right. So so that's what it was. So something like that, you know, would need to be made as an X's and O's change. But the point that I'm always trying to hit on is the idea that like, okay, when you have these players on the court. Can you make that change by snapping your fingers from one game to the next? Can you, uh, if you remember last year when the Clippers were like top blocking everything? Yes. With, and then, right. Yeah, right. Go, go ahead. Well, and then they just slip and cut. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So it's like if you, and, and um, you know, you and I obviously could talk about things with Steph Curry till, till we're blue in the <laughs> face. If you look at the Honestly, fact that that's like a, like, you can have a PhD in studying Steph Curry well, and still not have a firm grasp on everything he does on the basketball see, court. See, I think, you know, you said, like, rerouting, or I said rerouting him, and yeah. I think there's a there's an entire parallel, and it's a video that now with this uh, respite I'm probably going to get to sooner rather than later, which is great, but I think there's an entire parallel with the way football uses routes and receivers and space mm-hmm. and the way Steph Curry moves off the ball, and he's... He's not unique. This is the part of the value of off-ball movement. Reggie Miller had it. You can go all the way back to John Havlicek. Like the value of this off-ball movement is that without the basketball, you don't have to worry about dribbling. <laughs> right. So so you can do things both with your feet and your hands that you mm-hmm. can't do when you're dribbling and that makes all of these players extremely difficult to take away because the so-called counters that we're talking about, even an X's and O's adjustment in a coaching meeting, are as easy as just going, well, I'm just going to utilize this other thing that this guy's good at. Yeah. That's well, it. I, so I've, I've, talked about, I've talked about this a lot in the past. Um, I, the beautiful game Spurs, you know, the, the, the team that won in 14, um, I think is the greatest basketball team of all time. And it was because they and they did stuff just allowing the ball to to kind of create your space. It was all about getting gaining fractions of a second over and over and over again, right, 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 until you went from a you know a fine look to a good look to a great look. And Steph Curry is able to do that <laughs> in a way that just not a lot of people have because he can not only do it conventionally, like Reggie Miller running out to the to the three point line. But he can do it thirty feet from the basket. We're gonna we're gonna get in real trouble for six degreesing ourselves into a Steph Curry conversation. We're gonna get flamed a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're three for three on talking about. I know, yeah. but he's he's just such a fascinating right, player. Exactly, exactly. In a way that I mean, like LeBron is fascinating, but for different reasons. You he, know, LeBron is fascinating in the way that Shaq is because so much of what he's able to do is. You know, he physically overwhelms you, but then he's also just incredibly intelligent about the way he plays. And Steph, it's, you know, there's a different type of intelligence where it's, you know, understanding his powers to a certain degree. I mean, LeBron certainly does, but he also knows everyone else's power. And I don't know if Steph has that, um, but but Steph does it. It's almost like a finesse will that he's trying to, uh, 
you know, uh, impress on the game. Well, right. Whereas, whereas LeBron, I mean, his his performance in the 2015 Finals, where Kyrie and Kevin Love weren't out there, I still, to this day, think might be the most impressive series anyone's ever played in the sport because he he just took the game, he slowed it to a crawl, and I mean, he's one of I don't know four or five players that have ever played that could do that the way he did it. Everything, be, I mean, Le, it was the LeBron series, and it wasn't, and it wasn't like that's how he wanted to play. It was him saying, "What do I need to do to give us a chance to win?" Of course, they just didn't have the bodies. But um, you know, I've watched that finals a couple of times now, just because I'm so fascinated by LeBron. So I don't always talk about my my preferences for players and things like that. More of more of how they play, and mm-hmm. you know. but for me, I think this is my favorite version of LeBron right now. Right now, yes. Oh, he's incredible. Right now, this this more floor brown, full floor bound, hyper cerebral, almost. And and this is probably going to throw some people when I say it, um, but almost like late stage Magic Johnson impression. Mm-hmm. And I think the reason it throws people is because they think of LeBron as being this incredible physical bionic titan who's 250 or the the way the media likes to you know he's 6'10 285 (laughs) pounds 2.2 percent body fat um but if you look at how magic played near the end of his career when he was posting up people in the half court but then pushing in transition the passing was at a level that maybe we've never seen in nba history it was very similar in terms of the geometry of the game exploiting holes figuring out when he himself had a mismatch, hitting another player who had a mismatch, finding these little cracks in the defense. Back then, there was a lot of cross-screening in the lane. That was a very typical action, right? Like, screen from one block to the other. And so, when a defender turned his head, Magic would throw the ball 100 miles an hour past his head while he was standing right there. LeBron is doing something similar in the modern game where he's like, if your head is turned and your guy's out of position... I'm going to throw a lob to the far side of the rim as long as you're JaVale McGee, Dwight Howard, or Anthony Davis, mm-hmm. right? So I see a lot of similarities here in terms of uh, what I guess just comes down to mastery in my mind, you know? Right. Like having, well, having the game figured out. And also, this is really the first time first time in his career he's had that kind of vertical spacing. I, I have been waiting a long time for him to get a big man partner like this and, yeah. he, ha- and he happened to get a guy three who might who might, well he got three of them but one of them right. might be the greatest lob finisher in league history right talking about dwight howard right <laughs> i'm not talking about dwight howard <laughs> talking about the other one yeah javel javel yeah, he's fantastic yeah. JaVale. just amazing uh i don't know man i like did i throw you what, off what, with that <laughs> yeah is, you think Anthony Davis is the greatest lob I th- finisher in history? I think that if you rack up the guys, now of course he plays in an era where this the spacing and the style of mm-hmm. play affords those plays way more frequently, right? But I think if you rack up the guys, he's he's right there. I mean, did did DeAndre Jordan just I, not exist? No, or? I don't think John DeAndre Jordan has the sort of agility in those spaces i mean he could be a candidate because yeah he's so vertical well, if he if he doesn't dunk it though it's not he has no shot at putting it in the, the basket the thing the thing with ad amari stoudemire is another guy by the way who who is there for me but the thing with ad is if you think about the frequency of his ability to catch 
lobs and those spaces and then yeah. the and then the radius of those passes like you said it doesn't have to be up there and then you take it home for a dunk you can throw these wild passes and he makes catches uh, that are sometimes he'll put him in for a layup sometimes he'll come right down and go back up or get fouled when he's catching it like that is a weapon i think exists more with him than perhaps any player i've ever seen that's interesting was, was that a hot take no, not at okay. all. Okay, you're just I mean, you're ruminating. Literally the de- yeah, literally the <laughs> the definition of the opposite of a hot take. I mean, you've actually thought about it. Anyway, where were we? I don't remember. So, I don't remember. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, you know, LeBron's good at basketball. <laughs> yeah, LeBron, LeBron's amazing. But <laughs> back to Steph Curry. Most importantly, <laughs> there's just never been a player like Steph Curry, and and I think with LeBron, the Magic comps are very like they're not a hundred percent right on but but they're close like we can at least say he's an approximation and and with Steph there's just nobody I mean I guess well but he Mahmoud, wasn't Mahmoud Abdul Rauf no kind of no. but the game well the game wasn't the same either right so I, I just I, that's such a stretch to me but but yeah I mean I think this conversation at least demonstrates to me how sometimes it's less about a player and more about the underlying qualities so I wouldn't say LeBron 10 years ago 2009 LeBron played similar to magic and in fact i wouldn't say over the course of their career magic and lebron are really similar it's more like this incarnation of lebron speed transition but then can slow it down uses mismatches all the things i highlighted earlier reminds me of like go back and watch 1991 magic johnson mm-hmm. so so you have these things yeah. that come out well in- so that's who i think of by the way i don't think of 1983 magic johnson just, I mean, he used his size so much more later in his career like that. Right, right, right. And exactly. I think LeBron has just been excellent at, at using his size since like 2009, basically, was when he kind of figured that out. I mean, he always used his size to a certain degree, but not like he has for the last 10 years. But, but Which, by the way, it's insane that we've, we're talking about a, this guy who's been this freaking good sure. for this it's long. It's ridiculous. But, yeah. Yeah. But uh, I think the point I was making there was just just more about in general how even when we get back on Steph Curry, it's not 2012 Steph Curry. It's not mm-hmm. something innate to Steph Curry's Steph Curryness that we talk about him sometimes and and in sort of in awe of this thing. It's more like he represents an old archetype, and he stretched that so far that it became basically a new thing. And the, the the things that he stretched were a combination of other factors. It was mm-hmm. it was shooting, it was off ball movement, it was gravity and spacing. You know, we talked a lot about gravity and spacing in the in the underworlds of basketball discussions for players like Dirk Nowitzki or Kevin Garnett. Right. You know, when when Steph Curry was at Davidson, he wasn't even a thing about okay, now you're pulling players out and opening up space. What does that do? When the Lakers did things like in two thousand eight, you know, I'm gonna play Vladimir Radmanovich at the four. When the Sonics said we're going to play Richard Lewis at the four, we're spacing the court. These things existed before. And with mm-hmm. Curry, I think the fascination and, and the thing that you alluded to earlier about needing to do a PhD to get all the little nuances is about taking all these things that have existed in NBA history and ramping them up to a place that kind of creates its own new thing. Yeah. And, and also, I think that there like I talk about Steph causing the game to evolve and it's because what he does is at least easier to mimic 
Like you can at least try to do what he does with LeBron. So much of it is just outside of the realm of possibility for a lot of for most players. That combination of skill and speed and IQ and size and strength. I mean, it's just good luck. Whereas there's a lot more Steph Curry sized guys playing basketball. I suppose there are. I I wonder about how outlying the hand eye coordination is. Like, mm-hmm. is, isn't he near a scratch golfer? Yes, he is. Yeah, actually. I mean, I mean, yeah. I, I talked about this with Eric Leiterstorff from P3 recently, mm-hmm. uh, a couple episodes ago on types of athleticism. But sometimes we only think of like, oh, this guy's an outlier sure. because of because of his physical tools, and he's six eight, and clearly he, he's like a mutant. It's incredible. But sometimes it's the stuff that you can't see, <laughs> right? Right. Well, so, it's like deceleration. People don't think about that as a as a facet of athleticism right but clearly being an elite decelerator it gives you a huge advantage and so like we don't think about james harden and and luca and their ability to stop on a dime from full speed we don't think about that as athleticism but it very much is so i think about stuff like free throw shooting which Mm -hmm. most people think of as the least athletic thing on the basketball court because if you look at the history of great shooters as they get older and as they shoot more and they get more comfortable under pressure, their late career free throw shooting is always the highest. It's it's 90%, right. 92%. Yeah. You know, I'm bird. I can get Michael 90, Jordan. 3%. Jordan was... Uh, he was like 76% around there for a long time and then was above 80. Right? I think, the, but I think, he stab- I think he stab- he's more of a guy who stabilized around 84. Okay. I think for a number of years off the top of my head, whereas... These other guys, these all-time great shooters, Reggie Miller, Larry Bird, um, yada, 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 they, they were always really good, and then they would get into the low 90s. Mm-hmm. And so I think about that as like, okay, that's a very interesting, more controlled place to look at the upper bounds of your hand-eye coordination. And Because we're, when you shoot a basketball, you're doing this little ballistic movement where you flick your muscles and you let it go and you try to line it up perfectly. And then By the I said, way, I was dead wrong about his free throw shooting. Why? Do you look at Washington? Uh, uh, no, no, no. I pulled it up. He's 84 I, I was, for a number yeah, of years in a, Chicago, 80, right? 83 and a half for his career. Yeah. yeah. Um, but was mostly above 80. He had one season below 80. Just just at the beginning. Who was I thinking of that was like 76% but was a really good shooter? I don't know. Anyway. Anyway, so with Curry, uh, what did what did Steph Curry shoot in the playoffs last year from the free throw line? Oh, that's very easy to find out. I believe it was 95%. Probably. Okay, so... He's going to... I think that he'll have a season where he shoots like 97%. Okay, so this is what I'm saying. This is... Yeah. As a, as when we talk about outlying features or outlying athleticism or things that are easy to reproduce in the population or whatever, I'm going to... 94%. Okay. And I, I think that's right around the all-time record for a... Actually, he was 95.7% in 2017, 2018 in the playoffs. So those are smaller samples. But what I'm looking for is... As he gets into his 30s and as he gets through the twilight of his career, is he, is he going to have a season where he shoots like 96% from the free throw line? And if that's the case, then I'm going to be I'm going to be that guy yelling from the hills saying like, "Well, yes, LeBron has one in a billion athletic traits when it comes to, you know, durability and strength and size and speed and quickness and that combination, but you're equally unlikely to find that kind of hand-eye coordination in an athlete who can at least keep himself on the basketball court also hmm. sh- shout out to dave hoopla the shot doctor 
<laughs> have you ever met Dave Hoopla? I haven't. Um, no. Is he a 10 toes guy? He is the greatest shooter I've ever seen. And okay. I, I believe he holds Guinness World Records. And his shooting is so good that despite being a, a fairly subpar athlete, I think by his own admission, it allowed him to play at like borderline pro levels because uh, he's okay. Think Steve Novak and then think yeah. a better shooter. Wow. Yeah. But he okay. wasn't, he wasn't super tall either. Right. Huh. That kind of thing where you're just, yeah. I, I watched him. He came to a basketball camp I went to when I was a kid and he would take a hundred threes as he lectured going around the circuit and he'd make 99 of them. No joke. Wow. It was just silly. Could he do it in games though? So obviously in games, you're, your percentage is going to go down for, yeah. you know. I mean, not 99%, but was he a 60, 55% three-point shooter? I think the reason why he was able to continue to play at higher levels, I mean, this is this is years ago, um, and he's still out there doing doing clinics and, and things like that. But uh, I, I think the reason he was able to continue to play at higher levels was once he got in the game, he was still a lethal shooter. Oh man, we're desperate already. Oh, is that it? Should we switch I mean, should we switch to coronavirus? No, I mean I'm gonna bring Maya in, in a minute. You just let me know. You let me know yeah, when to when to press I, the eject button. I mean we're good. We're Wait a gonna, second, we gotta finish. Interesting. We I gotta, think it's an interesting conversation. It's not it's not like it's boring, but it is um I I think we owe it to those listening to to finish our MVP discussion. Yeah. Okay. So I mean I, I basically laid my guys out there and how I get there. Um, you know, for, for me, it's very much about individual performance matters, team performance matters. And I really do care about defense, which I know a lot of people don't. Um, but I think that if you're going to be an elite defense player of the year, all NBA first team defense level player, and you're having an incredible season it, that, that needs to come into account. So, you know, I, if LeBron was all NBA first team, I think this is an even an even tighter conversation or a race. Um, but he's not. Wait a second. And he's Wait a not, second. LeBron's not all NBA first team. Defense. Oh, defense. Okay. Defense. Right. defense Sorry, defense. my apologies. Yeah. No, don't worry. He's all NBA first team. Yes. Uh, wow. You know what I think I'm 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 realizing here as we talk about this. It's the college football polling system. Yeah. It's the problem of anchoring people creating a bias by saying who's your mvp after four weeks after eight weeks after 12 mm -hmm. weeks and then you have this idea that Giannis has a quote-unquote lead whereas right. whereas my whole thing is yes Giannis may be the mvp he's certainly a warranted mvp he's having an amazing season but if we had just come at this thing fresh at the end of the year and said make some viable cases for mvp Giannis still may have 60 percent of the votes but it wouldn't feel like some weird out of the blue narrative that you have to create. I mean, some of the narratives about LeBron winning MVP have obviously been bizarre in that they involve things that have nothing to do with basketball. Um, but right, you know, they they would be probably on similar footing. Um, you could come up with, you know, lines of reasoning for other people. Perhaps I don't know how strong the case is for what you have Kawhi three. And AD four, AD four, yeah, yeah. I think it probably it probably only gets harder in this case this season because both LeBron and Giannis are playing at such a high level, right? And have played basically so much most of their teams' games, and their teams mm -hmm. are the two top seeds, right? And there's it's a rare scenario. It's a rare scenario, and there's ample evidence that not only are both great players 
in the abstract, period, but both players providing tremendous situational value on each team. And so for me, I have, I, you know, I don't know what my MVP ballot would look like because I really don't get the criteria totally. Um, but I think if we started it from a fresh perspective at the end of the year, instead of trying to talk about these races and have like updated power rankings, we wouldn't bias ourselves necessarily. And it would look like a very incredible, rare two man race, which I, I, I think is not far from the truth here. Yeah, it's it's closer than a lot of people will want to admit. Right. But it's not close enough that I think that, you know, I mean, we, we got two weeks of TV content out of it, if that makes sense. Yeah, exactly. Well, right. well it feels like... It's not a 1A, 1B. It's, it's a 1 and a 2. It feels like more of a disservice to Giannis for him not to win. 100%. Than for LeBron to win, and I think that's where the chafing comes from. Right. I don't know. I, I think that I actually really don't care about awards at all because I also like I mostly don't care about um, and I know this is going to hurt you. Uh, I don't care about people's place in history. <laughs> I really just like basketball. Hold on. I know. I just I know. need a, I just need a moment. This is where people accuse me of not really liking the NBA. OK, I've gathered myself. <laughs> how how dare you? How dare I, mean, I, I invite you on here. I just let you tell me who's great historically. That's that's what I do. And then you go for it. And then that's it. No, the argue first... it. No, I'm kidding. Because <laughs> the first time you came on, you, you said that Steph Curry was a top 10 player of all time. I think so. Yeah. I, I haven't put the hours and or weeks of thought that you've probably put oh, on. Oh, weeks. I mean, Thank weeks you. worth of hours, right? Thank you for that compliment. I'm assuming slightly longer. It's slightly longer than that. Depressingly longer. Um, Okay. I haven't put the lifetime of thought into it that you have, but I also like, we've talked about this. I I don't, you're not a ranker. uh, Yeah. I'm not a ranker. I'm not a chart. I'm not a guy who's going to like, you're, you're like chart movies. You're like Charles Barkley's fave five. Maybe. Yeah. You've got like 11 guys in your fave five. Yeah. Oh, for sure. There are, there are, there are 60 guys in my top 40. I mean, we've talked about that. How many guys are in your top 10? Probably fifteen, okay. and it's because it's very much a feeling, and it's also fluid. If that if that makes any sense whatsoever, it is not scientific, and I never claim for it to be something that I've put a ton of thought in. You know, it's like Damian Lillard is like a top ten player, just because it feels right. It has no, you know, I, I have no idea if I sat down and listed him if I would list him in the top ten. I know he's in my top fifteen, which is kind of again, th- this thing is more about feeling than than anything else, which. You know, I, I'm, I'm sure I'm going to get roasted for this, but at least I'm honest about it. Do you roast food that way as well? No. But the food is scientific for you. you no. <laughs> you know, it's funny. Uh, actually, no. Food is jazz, man. I, 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 don't, I don't use the oven to cook a lot. Basketball is jazz. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So why would I take a different approach? Um, my thing is I, I just try to arm myself by watching as much as I can, um, by digging into the, to the numbers as much as I can. Wait, are we are we talking about basketball or are we talking about food? Talking about basketball. Okay, all right. Right? If we're going to talk about food, it's taste, smell, color. Like, what does that look like? You know, and I'm tasting everything constantly. Um, and, you know, I've got an excellent palate, just like for basketball. Remember? <laughs> I was going to say remember to wash your hands, and then I processed the words that came out of your mouth. And uh, All right, Dave. 
Thanks as always for stopping by. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I appreciate it. Hopefully, hopefully, let us know on Twitter. Um, mo- <laughs> mostly let Dave know. Dave, where can people find uh, you so they can give you feedback? You can just find me wherever. Was this if a good enough find- escape? Um, I hope so. Yeah, let us know because, uh, first of all, you have a very thoughtful audience, which is great. Um, I know they challenge right? me. Yeah, no, it's fantastic. Um, guys, tell Ben what you want him to talk about. That's super helpful when there's nothing happening. Um, but also, if 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 the distractions are good, let him know because it's like it's a weird time, and we don't really know what to do with ourselves any better than anyone else. Like, I'm not any more prepared for a global pandemic than the next guy. And our jobs are weird. That's, so, that's true. Yeah. Well said. Yeah. Um, find me Find me if you have nice stuff to say. But if you don't have anything nice to say, just keep it to yourself. Where can people find your stuff, your work, all, all you know? At The Athletic. Not on Twitter. There you go. Yeah. I don't... Well, on Twitter... Twitter's for jokes, man. <laughs> so... 100%. So they should email The Athletic... Jokes and good and good scientific information on the stuff that's happening. Should right they now. send a letter, Dave Duf- CC Dave Dufour? Oh yeah, please to the athletic but, headquarters and with a with a self addressed stamped envelope so that I can respond. If that if someone needs to make this happen, please please make this happen. Yeah, send fan mail like actual mail. That would be incredible. Um, before we bring in Maya to talk about the coronavirus. Um, Dave, his most recent... Hold on. I can't believe you just did this where we had this ridiculous, silly conversation and you're like, and now we're pivoting to the coronavirus. (laughs) Well, what am I supposed to do? No, you did let them know ahead of time and they could skip. I told them at the beginning. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you want to do a a post-show for Patreons? We can do a post-show. Yeah, maybe. But I will plug, before you do the post-show, I will plug... Uh, the show that we just did on Nerd or That's Shiro. what I was I was plugging okay. that. I was getting okay. to that right there. All right. Tell I, I did I I thought it was important. Tell everybody remember, you, about you that. plug it. You plug it. No, it was a it was a fantastic show. Um yeah. I I told Dave, I said, Dave, I'm gonna get a coronavirus expert on. And he said that's a great idea. And he and he found um two experts, not just well, one. Hold on. Now I here, here I had Dr. Uh, Dr. Benny, who is uh, an epidemiologist, he's actually a sports epidemiologist. And I had Dr. Botazi, who is an infectious disease expert. She actually works uh, at Baylor University developing vaccines. So she was um, incredible. And she's worked she worked on SARS for years. So she's intimately familiar with with this type of virus. And I mean, uh, her information was fantastic. And, yeah. and highly recommend everyone go listen to that because um you know it, it's it's sobering but it's stuff that we all should hear like more information is a good thing we're not getting great information from the people who should be giving us good information so it was my tiny little opportunity to do something that actually matters versus just talking about bullshit well well worth the listen it's uh dave seth part now and those two they are fantastic um well well worth the listen last episode of Nerder she wrote on the athletic back-to-back podcast back-to-back podcast so now let's bring in uh as promised dr maya majumder she is a faculty member at boston children's hospital at harvard medical center she does all kinds of research into understanding diseases and modeling them and things of that nature so maya thanks so much for taking the time sure thing 
So what I thought you could help us with is this idea of how epidemiologists are modeling in the data right now what is happening in real time with something like COVID-19, where we're looking at things like case fatality rate and how to estimate them and calculate them from a lot of imperfect information, maybe estimations about how many people are infected in a given population. Can you speak to that a little bit more and, and shed some light on that for us? Right, absolutely. So there are a lot of different forecasting approaches that are being used right now to try and figure out not only how many cases there might be in the future, but actually how many cases there are right now. So this is one of those unusual situations that where we have kind of this catch-up game to play with diagnostics because this outbreak and this disease are both so new that we're still trying to figure out, for example, how many cases are in the United States right now, today, at this very moment. So it's an interesting kind of situation where, whereas many of us, like myself, computational epidemiologists, and other outbreaks have focused on forward projections, right now we're kind of trying to figure out just what's happening on the ground right now. So there are a bunch of different techniques that are used for this. One of the ways that I personally think is is very interesting is something that Trevor Bedford's group in Seattle is doing where they're using virological data to try and figure out how long this virus has actually been in the United States. And that method uses this assumption that we may not have caught the virus the minute that it stepped onto United States soil. And that happens when you have a novel virus that has really kind of vague symptoms like the coronavirus does, where these are general respiratory symptoms that can be aggravated to cause pneumonia. But we know that for some people, the cases are pretty mild. And we're also in the middle of flu season and at the beginning of allergy season. So there are a lot of complicating factors that have made this particularly challenging. But his group is trying to use neurological data to try to figure out how many cases there might be here in the United States right now. That said, I think even he would mention that the the projections or the estimates for, for today that his group have come up come up with are perhaps an order of magnitude off in either direction. So I would say that this is a very uncertain science at this point. But as you mentioned, this isn't the only kind of thing that we care about modeling right now. I think that one of the the big issues that's come up is the case fatality rate and just how high is it exactly. And the thing is, these two things are related, right? So to know the case fatality rate, you kind of need to know how many infections there have been already, and not all those infections go to seek care in the hospital. So it's a, it's a really kind of delicate balance of trying to figure out how many people go into that denominator so we can figure out how, how many people to divide the number of deaths that we've seen so far by. So I imagine one factor might be, say, trying to bake in how many cases are asymptomatic, right? Right. You want to speak to that a little bit more? Yeah, right. So right now we have no real idea what percentage of patients don't develop cases or that don't develop symptoms at all. I think that that's one of the big issues. Right now, I think that one of the big theories, though, is that probably most people who catch it show some symptoms, but those symptoms might be very mild. So 
this is one of those issues where, again, because we're in the middle of flu season and we're at the beginning of seasonal allergy season, it can be difficult to tell whether or not you actually have symptoms or not. I think many of us cough a couple times a day, sneeze into our arm a couple times a day. So this is one of those things where the line between actually asymptomatic and a very mild case might be blurred. And the way that we address this eventually will be by doing seroprevalence studies where we take people's blood and then try to figure out whether they have developed antibodies against this virus at some point in the recent past. And so that will eventually be able to tell us how widespread this disease has been here in the U.S. But the best thing that we can do between now and then is try to have wider spread testing. And that's something that we're really struggling with right now. So that method that you just alluded to right there, is that essentially what you guys are doing every year with flu estimates where not everybody's going to go to the doctor and get a positive test for the flu, right? So speak, speak to that a little bit more. No, absolutely. So I'm glad that you brought this up because flu is very interesting in that we actually model the number of cases every year that we think are happening based off of a whole host of different data sources. So uh, there are a number of different groups that that do this work where they attempt to model the number of actual influenza-like illnesses that occurred every year. And there are a number of inputs that go into that. I have a colleague who uses Google search trends and and healthcare data in terms of um, trying to figure out how many people might actually be catching flu every year. So just like this, for flu, you're absolutely right. Most people don't go to the hospital to seek care when they get influenza-like illness. So there are models that have been developed over the last several years that attempt to estimate this and attempt to estimate the disease burden associated with this. Now, The thing is, these models have very, very wide margins of error. What we know right now, for example, in the U.S. is that we're probably in the double digits in terms of influenza-like illness here in the U.S., but it's unclear whether it's 10 million or whether it's 40 million. So that's a pretty big margin of error. The, The... issue is, though, I think that, you know, this is still within one magnitude. And I think that that's basically the aim every year to try and figure out whether or not that magnitude is kind of getting bigger or getting smaller. We want it to get smaller, obviously. But in in general, the fact that people don't seek care for this is something that modelers have been trying to address for several years now. And it seems like it's working. There have been a couple of years where Sarah prevalence studies have been deployed because of interest in a new flu strain. For example, during H1N1 in 2009, a number of seroprevalence studies were done to address the case fatality ratio issue in part, because one of the big concerns during that time was that, oh, this new flu, this H1N1 might be a lot deadlier than other types of flu. And it's true that this flu was very widespread and, and we experienced a lot of fatalities due to this pandemic. But as that research was done, what we ended up finding was that the case fatality rate was actually much less than what we had originally thought based off of people that were only showing up at the hospital. And uh, my guess is that that will likely happen with COVID-19 as well, where as we learn more about what that denominator actually looks like, there's a chance that this this, uh, percentage or this rate might change over time. 
So when I go and see, say, the CDC published historical flu numbers, is that actual case fatality rate, is that including all of these asymptomatic cases? For instance, uh, I stumbled upon a study where maybe 75% of flu cases in a season might be asymptomatic. So are we talking about apples to apples here in the comparisons right now? If someone sees case fatality rates, are they comparable when comparing Mm -hmm. COVID-19 to other diseases? No, I think that right now they're not comparable. So I think that with flu, for the case fatality rate that, say, the CDC reports for general seasonal flu, that number is probably baking in the fact that not everybody goes to seek care once they contract it. Whereas the number that's being reported right now by the WHO is rightfully only including the information that we have right now, where that denominator is probably... It's probably underinflated, if that makes sense. So whereas we want it to reflect the number of people that aren't seeking care and that aren't being diagnosed, we're not really at that point yet. So it's a very crude estimate for now. And and we call this in some ways the the crude case fatality rate. But the thing is, the crude crude case fatality rate is also influenced by a couple of other things. So this is kind of important to keep in mind where this is not a – it's not a constant of nature. So the crude case fatality rate is one of those things where it changes over time. And the reason for that is when someone gets sick, they take a little while to either get better or to pass away, right? So that lag time is not always constant. There's a distribution associated with that, right? And what we're seeing is that people may take a few weeks to not get better. So we can't necessarily assume, for example, that everybody that enters the hospital is going to come out okay, but we also can't assume the number of people that aren't going to make it out. So at any given time when someone is reporting the crude case fatality rate for this outbreak, usually what they're doing is they're dividing the number of deaths that have been reported by the number of cases that have been reported. And as we approach the end of the outbreak, that number will become a truer version of of what we're actually trying to estimate here, because those lag times will eventually kind of fall out of the mix. But at that stage, we'll need to reconsider the denominator because we have to consider the fact that not all cases went to go seek care. And that's kind of when these seroprevalence studies can be really useful, or when some of these modeling techniques, like this virological technique, can be really useful. But I think the last thing that I'll add is that the case fatality rate is not something that is homogenous across populations or even in a population. So what we're seeing right now, for example, is that South Korea has a much lower crude case fatality rate than, say, Italy does associated with COVID-19. And there are a number of different theories as to why that might be the case. One of them right now is the fact that Italy's population population is older than South Korea's is. Another is that South Korea is doing a better job of figuring out how many cases should actually go in the denominator by doing widespread testing. But at the same time, with the kind of first reason that I gave in terms of the age demographics and the age demographic structure of either country, this is a really important consideration because we know that that populations around the world have different demographic structures in this particular property. So we need to kind of keep this in mind, especially because we're starting to see from clinical data that older age seems to be correlated with a higher chance of death given infection. So definitely one of those things where it's not uniform whatsoever. And we need to remember that when we talk about this. 
So last thing really quickly, if you are living here in the United States and you see something like 4,000 official cases, what's the range that you guys are currently projecting or working in to say, you know, what are the actual number of cases that we think exist right now in the wild based off that? That's a good question. So I was actually just talking to a colleague about this last night. I think that probably for the average person at this point, knowing the number of cases actually isn't useful because we have such a wide range of possibilities and those ranges seem to vary considerably from one method to another. That said, I think that the thing to really keep in mind for the average listener is to keep an ear to the ground and to see whether your state is talking about community transmission where you are, because if there's community transmission, it doesn't really matter so much how many cases there are. What matters is that we're already seeing transmission in the community and outside of family clusters. And in that case, we should really be trying to practice social distancing, stay home and work from home if you're capable of doing that, limit social gatherings, that sort of thing. Maya, thanks so much for taking the time and good luck with all your research and helping people going forward on this. Thank you very much, Ben. Dr. Maya Majumder, you can follow her on Twitter at Maya Majumder, M-A-I-A, first name, and then last name M-A-J-U-M-D-E-R if you want to keep up. She has been tweeting out some uh, information throughout the day. Uh, These folks around the country that I know of at least are incredibly busy right now. It was really kind of her to just take a few minutes there and at least touch, maybe help give some appreciation for why certain numbers and figures aren't necessarily things that you should put too much trust or confidence in out in the uh, media or when you see them online or things like that. And then, you know, what the process is behind the scenes to try to get reliable information and all the ramifications that has for treatment and scaling, scaling treatment, scaling hospital beds, scaling services. Um, you know, it, it also highlights why testing and just like in basketball, having more reliable information, having that more accurate information from testing is so helpful and so valuable, especially right now. So when you go on social media or you see someone on the news and they have projected figures about number of cases or projected deaths or case fatality rates. Uh, And I've even seen sort of disagreement about saying, you know, this thing actually isn't that bad because the case fatality rate is being overestimated and therefore you should look at something like South Korea. Some people cut in the other direction with a population like Italy Uh, To me, the really sort of humbling, sober takeaway is that it's just too early. It's too early to tell for... And and, and there was something in there that she said, looking back over my notes here, um, that really popped out to me, which was the idea of if you have something like a case fatality rate, which is if you got 100 cases and five deaths, you have a 5% case fatality rate, five in every 100 people there. Well, the thing that's actually happening right now in the wild as this disease is unfolding and spreading is that both of the numbers in that equation are moving targets. And both of them have a distribution. So meaning the the distribution of um, when someone comes in and becomes a fatality, well, some people in the system who are already cases might pass away in three days. Some might be in the hospital for 
you know, 15 days or something like that. That has a distribution. Same thing with the denominator. The denominator, the number of cases, some people might be identified in three or four days and get into the system if they have symptoms or severe symptoms early and they get tested and go to the hospital. And in other cases, it may be, you know, 12 or 15 days before they even have onset of symptoms. Uh, that, That doesn't even mention the entire, you know, wrinkle of trying to bake in asymptomatic symptoms. And I thought her point about, you know, this idea that we're in a season where we may have a lot of asymptomatic cases of things, but they're difficult to differentiate between allergies or flu or other other stuff that may be going around right now. And so in real time, these are all the challenges that you're facing when you're trying to estimate what's happening or trying to model something, whether it's a fatality rate or whether it's total number of cases that you see on the news or something like that. And the the big takeaway for me is that if you can't be within an order of magnitude, you know, if you're saying like, well, it could be 50,000 people or it could be a million, then your 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 error bands, your your ranges of estimates are so large that um, it's not necessarily something you can really speak to with confidence. And so her takeaway, which is one that uh, I think we can all follow, is to say, if you're in one of these cities and populations where you've got any kind of community spread and you've got the disease going around, um, wherever you are in the world, social distancing, stay indoors, limit your social social gatherings, and that is going to um, save lives, basically. And I think we can we can all follow that advice. As far as the actual numbers and what they'll be, um, that's still a process that's pretty pretty interesting to hear about that process, but that's not something that we will really know, it sounds like, with any degree of accuracy for a while until we can, you know, start looking at blood and who's developed antibodies and um, long-term kind of stuff like that. Similarly, I, I think I want to echo something that she said that really resonated with me, which, you know, we can kind of map back to stuff we see in basketball sometimes. This isn't a fixed value. This is this is going to be different depending on your your age, you know, demographic, the other characteristics in the population. And so it I guess in a sense naive to assume that there is one fixed value that applies to all groups of people or even all regions or populations. And yeah, let me know what you thought of this, if you found it helpful, if you have further questions, if in the future, as things unfold, sounds like this is going to be more of a marathon than a sprint. As things unfold, if you want any more coverage on COVID-19, there will be a post show with Dave Dufour. I will release that shortly after this on patreon.com slash thinking basketball. Head on over there to find it, patreon.com slash thinking basketball. Patreons support this show and make it possible, especially uh, in times like these. Regularly scheduled programming will go on. I'm not sure if every single week there will be an episode, but uh, as many of you have reached out, there's plenty of content to get to. The Great Debate series will continue. There might be some other historical stuff, but There will be more podcasts coming, and of course, uh, videos will be back up on the 
Thinking Basketball YouTube channel as well shortly. Both both stuff that is current from the 2020 season and some historical stuff depending on how last how long this break last thanks so much for listening all the way to the end i hope everyone out there is keeping their distance from one another washing their hands for at least 21 and a half seconds um and singing whatever favorite they say to sing your like a happy birthday song i mean i say sing the song of your favorite band don't don't sing it's a small world after all or um 1-800-CARS-FOR-KIDS because it might get stuck in your head for a very long time that's it for me uh thanks for listening all the way to the end and of course i hope you are all having a great day